Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we calculate weird and wonderful science using your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. Daniel Mansfield concludes his talk about strange geometry and antiquity. First up, here's news of healing factors and Facebook going nuclear. Muscle Regeneration. A team from the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute at Monash University have discovered that a protein called nicotinamide phosphoribosyltransferase in zebrafish stimulates the growth of muscle stem cells, leading to healing. When used in mice suffering from muscle damage, the protein healed their muscles significantly. The zebrafish stem cell stimulating protein, nicotinamide phosphoribosyltransferase, corresponds with the human protein, visphatin. The researchers plan to trial muscle regeneration therapies based on visphatin. Visphatin works by activating CCR5 receptors. These receptors are part of the immune system. People with a particular mutation in part of their CCR5 receptor gene are immune to HIV. CCR5 receptors are also involved in cancer growth, and there are CCR5 receptor therapies for HIV that are being trialled as anti-cancer therapies. Visphatin works with the NAD plus nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide system, which is part of cellular energy use and repair, by helping cells make nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, which then becomes NAD+, as part of a scavenging recycling system that the cell uses to make more NAD+. When we tear a muscle, stem cells inside the muscle repair the problem. We can see this happening not only in severe muscle-wasting diseases such as muscular dystrophy and in catastrophic limb injuries, but also in our day-to-day lives when we pull a muscle. When we age and become frail, we lose much of our muscle, and we also have a reduced amount of NAD plus in our cells to regenerate and heal that muscle. The Monash researchers use zebrafish because these fish are quick to reproduce, easier to experimentally manipulate, and share at least 70% of their genes with humans. Zebrafish larvae are transparent, which allows the scientists to watch regeneration in living muscle. When the researchers studied how a zebrafish heals from damaged muscle, they saw that a group of immune cells called macrophages moved to the injury, covered it, and stimulated the growth of muscle stem cells, which regenerated the muscle and healed it. Previously, it was believed that when macrophages go to the site of an injury, they just clean up debris. In zebrafish, they saw eight different macrophages, but just one type of macrophage was stimulating the muscle stem cells to grow and multiply. 
A closer look showed that these macrophages were releasing the protein nicotinamide phosphoribosyltransferase. To find out if this was all the macrophages were doing differently, they tried removing these macrophages from the fish and then adding that protein to the aquarium water. It worked. Muscle stem cells started to grow and promote healing, showing that the protein took over for the missing macrophage. They saw an increase in NAD plus as the muscles healed. The Monash team next tried placing hydrogel patches containing visphaton into mouse models of muscle wasting disease. It completely healed the muscle and returned normal movement, even after severe muscle trauma. Mice engineered to express a larger than normal amount of visphaton in their skeletal muscles had elevated NAD plus and metabolite levels and showed improved exercise endurance capacity when allowed to exercise at will. In another experiment, the team found that giving mice nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, helped their skeletal muscles heal in the same way as giving them visphaton, which makes sense as visphaton makes NMN. This is strong support for Professor David Sinclair's research on NMN treatment to restore youthful body repair to older people. Perhaps a visphaton drug may get the NMN, where our cells can make the most use of it, for healing and regeneration, and be more effective at reversing ageing than taking an NMN supplement. The papers were titled, Macrophages Provide a Transient Muscle Stem Cell Niche via NAMPT Secretion, and the effect of NAMPT deletion in projection neurons on the function and structure of neuromuscular junction in mice, both published in the journal Nature, and the paper Skeletal Muscle Overexpression of Nicotinamide Phosphoribosyltransferase in Mice Coupled with Voluntary Exercise Augments Exercise Endurance, published in the journal Molecular Metabolism. Corporations Attack! Last week, Facebook blocked Australians from using links in posts and deleted all of their old Facebook posts that included links, while blocking emergency services and community support groups. It was a preemptive strike, clumsily executed, against the Australian government's proposal that Facebook and Google should pay for the profit they make from Australian news extracts that they show with links. The Liberal National Party government doesn't really care about journalism. They care about getting extra cash for their biggest party donor, billionaire Rupert Murdoch. News Corporation is losing money on newspapers and cable TV. After a week of Facebook restoring emergency services and rape crisis and community groups and such, Facebook and the government changed the legislation together and passed their new version. The revisions mean that Facebook and Google don't pay everyone who's providing news that they profit from. Instead, they pay who they like as much as they like. Anything they pay for news is 100% tax deductible. So in the end, it's a fancy way for the Australian government to bribe Rupert Murdoch into pro-liberal National Party propaganda and party donations by giving taxpayers money to the billionaire. Here's an honest government ad from the Juice Media. 
Hello, I'm from the Australian Government with a message from our Prime Minister. In the digital age, our favourite media monopoly is suffering. It now has to compete for ad dollars with tech platforms. As firm believers in the free market, we can't let the market get away with this, so we've come up with a way to tilt it back in favour of this giant f***ing tumour. Introducing the News Corp Bargaining Code. Because we can all agree that Facebook is the problem. It's become too powerful. Pays f*** all taxes, promotes fake news, and then it tried to bully us. Your government. We can't let such power fall into the hands of this billionaire. That power needs to stay in the hands of this billionaire who's become too powerful, pays f*** all taxes, promotes fake news and bullies your government. News Corp Bargaining Code. The News Corp Bargaining Code recognises that traditional media is struggling. As advertisers shift to Facebook and Google, thousands of journalism jobs have vanished, many of them in regional areas. Sure, we could fix this by taxing tech giants and investing the revenue into quality journalism, but then we'd have to close tax loopholes and we can't do that to our friends. Plus it means we'd end up with quality journalism and f***ed if we want more of that. So instead we came up with a law to make Facebook and Google prop up mega news corporations by making them pay for news content linked to their platforms. Will that help our ailing media? Uh-huh. The code doesn't ensure the revenue will go to journos instead of shareholders and we don't really give a sh- the only reason we're doing this is to keep our propaganda department in business. News Corp Bargaining Code. The best part of the code is that instead of trying to fix what people don't like about big tech, it encourages traditional media to get in on the action. That's why rather than introducing stronger privacy laws to prevent your data being mined by these guys, the code lets these guys mine some of that data too. It also gives them access to changes to the algorithm, which means our friends will have inside knowledge that lets them optimise their content for clicks and ad revenue. And we all know that's what the world needs. More corporate clickbait bullshit. In short, the code aligns the interest of big media and big tech, thereby ensuring that they have a shared interest in destroying human civilization for profit. News Corp Bargaining Code. Of course, not all media will benefit from the code. Smaller publishers and independent journalists and YouTubers won't have access to these perks, making it harder for them to compete and survive. Which is great for us here at the Australian government, seeing as many of those smaller publishers, independent journalists and YouTubers just so happen to have become very good at exposing the sh- of the Liberal Government! News Corp Bargaining Code. So as you can see, it's a win-win. Big media gets propped up, big tech avoids being broken up, and big get re-elected, because we'll have silenced our critics. The loser, as always, is you. Authorised by the Liberal Government. You can support The Juice Media to make more Honest Government ads at patreon.com slash thejuicemedia. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Strange Geometries Dr Daniel Mansfield from the University of New South Wales has found that culture affects geometry. I spoke with Daniel by Zoom and continued by asking him, what are the differences in culture that allowed the Babylonians to find an easier way to do calculations than our Greek-based mathematical culture. 
So it's to do with the interplay between geometry and algebra. So for them, it was the algebra that was primary because they, I don't really want to call it algebra. Can we call it computation? Because computation was the thing they really had to be careful about. And if you don't prioritize that so much and you say, instead, I want the geometry to be the primary thing I care about. And you take this very Greek approach where you just talk about lines having a length. You never say what that length is. It's just this abstract notion of length. Then you never have to worry about the actual computational framework you're working in because you don't actually do the computations. So you can talk about length in this abstract sense as the Greeks would, and then you don't have the problem of ever having to compute something. So I think that's where it comes from, that the Greeks had this rather abstract approach to, to geometry and the kind of computational reality of these objects that the Babylonians were acutely aware of was dismissed or lost. So it's almost like the Greeks really just thought of all this as philosophy, as ideas to play with. And it's when we started to try and apply it that we came up against computational problems that yes. the Babylonians never had because they used a computationally easy way to do it. For them, it was always the computation came first. There was never that stage of philosophy where we thought, ah, I should be able to have rectangles of any imagining. They said, no, you can have these rectangles. Here are your handful of rectangles. I like to imagine they even had them like made of wood and they carry around with them the rectangles that they would use and talk about them. And you'd go to your Babylonian school down the road with your rectangles and they'd say, oh, but I have these rectangles. And you compare your rectangles and, and do things with those actual objects. Whereas in ancient Greece, you have people talking about a line. Just, it's just a line. <laughs> How long is the line? Don't ask those questions. It's just the line. Its length is its length. <laughs> if you go to Babylon, you say a line, then its length is five or some <laughs> fixed length. It's, it's always got a length. They've probably got it in front of them. <laughs> It's not abstract at all. So they always know how long a piece of string is. The piece of string is fixed, yes. And it's probably one of those nice numbers like five or four, not seven. Sevens, they don't like that one. That's a bit tough for them. So they'll avoid numbers like seven. So should we be adopting some of these easier ways to compute, these easier ways to work out geometry? I think there's a place in the world for that kind of thing, particularly in an environment where you're computational abilities are very constrained. So I, I like to think of, say, you've got some deep space probe that doesn't have a lot of power to work with. Every floating point computation just uses a relatively obscene amount of computational power. Maybe we could avoid all that by adopting this Babylonian approach and, and just program the probe to avoid things like dividing by seven because that takes a lot of energy and instead rewrite the programs to have this more Babylonian approach. Interestingly, the, when computers were first created, they used this same Babylonian approach. And then the IEEE floating point standard came along and said, actually, no, you, you, you can't do it any which way. You have to do it this particular way. And, and floating point arithmetic all of a sudden became very expensive. But the, the original way of doing the arithmetic in the original Babylonian way was actually computationally just ridiculously fast, which is why the original computers were made that way. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't do it that way anymore. It's a compromise. I, I should say it's a compromise because the Babylonian way is very fast, but you can only get so far with it. You can't do everything you might want to do. For example, divide by seven. <laughs> the modern way, you can do everything, but it's much more computationally expensive. And how did you come to be interested in this field? What, what drew you to it? I was teaching a class and I thought... 
how am I going to motivate my students? Well, maybe I'll get some pictures of old math. And so I pulled up some pictures. Of, I just typed in old math into the internet and found some pictures. And there were a few Babylonian objects. I saw the object called the very famous one called Plimpton 322. And it said, this was made for teaching students about numbers. And I thought to myself, hang on a second. I teach students about numbers 4,000 years later. I would never use something this sophisticated. That's ridiculous. You can't, this, this is not something that I could ever imagine someone using to teach students. There's something strange about this object, something that we don't understand yet. Now, of course, every time a mathematician sees this object, they say, say exactly the same thing. <laughs> what made me different was I had a colleague called Norman Wildberger down the road. So Norman's famous for not believing in angles. He loves all things rational, which is pretty close to the way the Babylonians were doing things. So I storm into Norman's office and say, Norman, look at this. And Norman says, that's very interesting. We should do something about this. And that's where we started. And so if people wanted to follow in your footsteps and have a career looking at exact sciences in antiquity, what would they study? How would they go about it? What would they study? Akkadian. So you'd need to study a bit of the language. There's loads of fabulous books out there. So I'd definitely recommend Jens Hoyrup, Lengths, Widths and Surfaces. That's one of the best books out there. It's very readable, contains loads of pictures and wonderful geometric examples and really shows you that you can do geometry without modern algebra. See, we think geometry and algebra are very closely intertwined and one is just, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. And then you've got this Babylonian approach which does geometry in a completely different way with no algebra whatsoever. And you really have to rewire your brain to think about what they're doing because it's, it's just so wonderfully different, which is fantastic because the way maths is approached in school is as this universal language. There is one way of doing things. There's one correct answer. And of course, we believe that because that's the way it's presented. There's just one geometry, essentially just one way of looking at geometry in modern mathematics. And it takes something from a completely different culture to be able to show us that actually that's all just a cultural perspective on mathematics. And it, it can be really different depending on where you're standing. There's a, a famous quote that says, God created the integers, all else is the work of man. <laughs> and I used to believe that. And now I just believe it less and less because the Babylonians were able to do maths and they didn't believe in any of those negative integers and they didn't believe in zero. So that statement's less than half true. Maybe just the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, and so on. Maybe they're the fundamental objects and everything else we just made up. It's just culturally determined. You're talking about the cultural aspects. And I was thinking of the Voyager tablet that's supposed to mm. have the universal language of mathematics. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Is that something <laughs> that would be a bit harder to decode than we thought because it's so culturally based? Yes, we might have overestimated just how universal mathematics is, especially sequences of prime numbers. Like I, I've heard of people blasting sequences of prime numbers out into space because they think the aliens yes. will pick that up because prime numbers don't occur in nature. Well, who's to say they understand prime numbers? The Babylonians <laughs> certainly didn't. So to them, it, it won't necessarily look like something that people have created. It won't necessarily look special. It won't necessarily catch their attention. And then, of course, you have Malcolm Turnbull's famous quote, 
The laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the only law that applies in Australia is the law of Australia. Well, mathematics is very culturally dependent, so maybe <laughs> I've never seen a successful attempt to legislate laws of mathematics. It has been tried before, yes. notably in the States. I think they tried to legislate the value of pi. They did. Uh, to be a rational number. Yes. So <laughs> that would be a different kind of mathematics. If you said pi was this value, then you'd sport, you'd branch off your own special kind of Australian mathematics where, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that... <laughs> That might be more difficult than was anticipated. Yes. So did the Babylonians understand pi? They had their own kind of pi. They would use the approximation pi equals three for all things involving circles and the ratio of a circle circumference to a diameter. And of course, we know that's not true exactly, but three is a divisor of 60 and it's very neat and easy for them to work with. Interestingly, this value also occurs in the Bible. It's in the Book of Kings where you've got someone building, a, I think it's a cauldron full of molten metal and it's got a certain circumference and a certain diameter. And if you divide the circumference by diameter, you get exactly three. And so people often make fun of this phrase that, oh, isn't that silly? Pi is not three. Well, if you look at the time, the approximations to pi that were being used at the time, this is just what people were saying at the time. This is the appropriate approximation that was used 4,000 years ago. And I bring this up with my engineering students and I say, oh, the Babylonians use pi equals three. And I get a snicker out of them. And I say, well, what do you think pi is? Oh, 3.14, sir. It's like, oh, la-di-da, 4,000 years more of uh, civilization. You've got pi down to two more digits than they did. It's not like <laughs> we're not that much better. So when did we start using the one we were taught at school was 22 over seven? Couldn't tell you when that one came oh. It's a, it's a pretty good approximation. No, it's a good approximation if you can divide by seven, that is. Yes. <laughs> Which the Babylonians didn't do. No, they would, that wouldn't be on. So that's a good approximation, but not something they could wield. Do we know if the Babylonians had secret messages? Not so much secret messages, but because so many people were illiterate, you couldn't tell what someone was writing. And so what you do is you get someone to write a contract... And of course, say you're illiterate. So you have no idea what the contract says. Maybe at the time it's, it seems all, all fine and it, you might have someone else who is literate making sure that the contract is good. But what, what's to say that someone couldn't then go change that contract because the clay's all wet. So someone could just say, aha, that wasn't 12 oxen, that's 11 oxen and, and steal an oxen from you. So what they do is they write the contract and let's say that all the witnesses there and saying, this is a good contract, this is what happened. They then seal it. So they get more clay and just make this clay envelope around the contract. And then you could hold that and, or you could get someone else to hold that. And you put your, your seal on top and you know that this thing can't be tampered with. So it's not so much a form of encryption, but a form of making sure that no one tampers with what's been written, especially if you can't read it yourself and you don't know if someone's trying to swindle you out of your oxen. So it's really wonderful to see just how different mathematics can be across different cultures. Uh, on one hand, we've got this modern approach to mathematics, which really goes back to the ancient Greek astronomers looking at the stars and mapping out the motion of the celestial bodies. And then if you go further back, you've got a different kind of mathematics in ancient Babylon, which is derived not from people looking at the stars, but from surveyors looking at the ground and operating within their restricted computational framework. And if you take these two essentially very different problems, you get 
very different approaches to mathematics. And that's what's really wonderful to me, that mathematics, something we think is universal, actually is so dependent on what questions you ask and where you come from and when you come from. Well, Daniel Mansfield, thank you very much. No worries. That was the second and final part of my interview with Dr. Daniel Mansfield about the ancient Babylonians' strange geometrical system based on a base 60 counting system. Dr. Mansfield will be speaking on the geometry of the ancient Babylonians at the Frontiers of Science Forum on the 12th of March, 2021, at the Concord Golf Club. If you come along on the night, I'll be running the question and answer. The Frontiers of Science Forum is run by the Australian Institute of Physics and the Australian Chemical Institute. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please rate Diffusion Science Radio on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in North East Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's science360.gov internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.